1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: This is on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center hope everybody's having a great day today. It's beautiful weather outside, a little on the hotter side here in Mississippi in the uh, early summertime. But we have gotten a little bit of a break uh, from time to time. It was sort of nice last night. I noticed the humidity had dropped a good bit uh, during the day. It was coming back up, of course, at night and early morning. But uh, it sort of takes the edge off if you're from Mississippi. If you're not from Mississippi and you're a new implant here uh, you might be sweating yourself to death. But welcome to the hot, humid summers in the South. But I do uh, hope everybody's taking precautions. Been talking about that for the last couple of weeks, uh, particularly as people are getting back outside with sort of a return to what is uh, sort of the new normal with uh, COVID-19. I do want to impress upon everybody. The, uh see a lot of people out there that are going back to the old normal, which is pretty much do what you want to do and congregate how you want to congregate. Do you want to keep uh, 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 everything on, on the forefront about all the risks that are still out there. COVID is still uh, in our environment. It's still spreading. One of the best ways as we've gotten more and more information on this in the last few months to protect yourself is when you're in groups, particularly if you can't stay more than six feet away from another person, you need to be wearing your mask. And certainly there's a lot of masks out there. I got a couple of them myself. Uh, I've got some that I, that are specifically designed to wear here at work in the hospital and clinics, uh, but also some masks that are quite fun uh, that you can wear uh, outside those uh, hospital. I carry one with me in my car. If I'm going into uh, the grocery store or if I'm going to a different place, I'm, certainly I can uh, put that mask on. So just want to um, encourage everybody to do that. The number to call today if you would like to call in with any kind of question about your health care is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can always send us an email if you're not able to call to remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to get to a couple of those emails in just a bit. Uh, do want to remind everybody that we archive all of our programs here on MPB Think Radio, including Southern Remedy. Uh, on our website. So that's MPB online. Usually have those up and uh, running in about a day. So uh, check those out. Maybe you weren't able to hear an entire episode, uh, but you can uh, you can tune in uh, and listen at your leisure. We're going to go to our first caller. Uh, we got Kristen from Jackson. Good morning.
1: Hi. I'm calling uh, because we recently moved to Jackson, Mississippi, from Seattle, Washington, and I have three young kids, ages four, two and a half, and one, and we previously took them to a a naturopathic um, nurse practitioner in the Seattle area, and we had such an amazing, amazing experience with that, but since I've come here, I haven't known really where to go. Um, and I was wondering if you had any recommendations of maybe medical doctors that might have training in naturopathy or if you know if there are any doctors in the area um, specifically that work with children um, that that have a natural medicine um, background or certification
2: yeah, Kristen that's you know i've I've been to the Pacific Northwest there's certainly a lot in the Seattle area uh, uh, that have more naturopath, naturopathic or homeopathic um, background and training, um, there's not, I'll be honest with you, there's not a whole lot in Mississippi uh, or the Jackson area. There are, are, there are some physicians that have been uh, trained in allopathic medic- medicine that do, uh, you know, they have uh, some kind sort of training or interest in, um, in naturopathic uh, uh, remedies and, and ways to treat things. So you might want to sort of check those out but there's not as many in the mississippi area certainly that's not the a, a large part of my training uh, but there are you know there are some people out there i'm just not off the top of my head i'm not able to to think of anybody to point point your way
1: okay i'm sorry did you say allopathic
2: yeah i should you know i, I should talk about that so allopathic and osteopathic are two of the main pathways for physicians in, in this country and really around the world. Um, so osteopathic medicine, uh, is a little bit different. Let's talk about allopathic first. Allopathic is sort of your traditional medical school. And, uh, although most modern medical schools do teach, uh, homeopathic and, uh, over the counter and natural remedies as part of their training, Um, and, uh, certainly, uh, in their, their four years of training, uh, it's not the mainstay. It's basically based upon, uh, you know, scientific, uh, methods of, of what the natural processes in the body are pathologies and sort of how do you, how do you treat those osteopathic medication is similar, but it also has other non-traditional ways. uh, Well, I should say non-traditional, but they're actually a little bit different there. Um, ways of, of treating um, medical conditions. They uh, use a lot of uh, physical manipulation in their training. Um, so this is a little bit different than, say, acupuncture or acupressure. Some of them do receive some training in that, depending on where they go to their osteopathic schools. Uh, and generally speaking, their first two years are centrally located And then for most of the osteopathic schools, their last two years, they have training over a broad area uh, that may be, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of miles across the country. So that's really allopathic and osteopathic. Allopathic would end in an MD degree and osteopathic would end in a DO degree. So that's that's what I mean by osteopathic and um, and allopathic. All right, Kristen, thank you for calling. And uh, sorry we couldn't give you a little bit more information. That's just, again, that's not the major background of of my training. And certainly we don't have a whole lot of people in the state that are trained that way. I I would would say uh, you want to be careful with that uh, because there's not a whole lot uh, of—you do have to be careful about over-the-counter and homeopathic remedies for things, particularly in children— Um, standardization is a problem with some of the remedies that are used just because there's variability in the things that you may get from one supplier that you may make yourself, uh, and it may have seemingly benign substances are in there that may have some major effects on, uh, on kids. So you want to be, uh, be careful in the young and the elderly. This is Uh, Dr. Jimmy, Uh, Kristen had been cut off, but she's back and I think she wants a follow up question. So let me put her back online. Oh, sure. Sorry about that. Hey, <laughs> yeah, Kristen, I'm sorry, sorry we, we, we dropped you there.
1: <laughs> it's okay. Go ahead. That's, that's helpful. And, um, I, I understand there's not as much, um, training maybe here for that or not as much demand. Um, and I understand, yeah, the risks also, I guess I just, um, I particularly what I appreciated about the doctor that we had back in, um, the practitioner in Seattle, was um, the environment of her office, like how different it was from a medical practice. And every doctor that I visited here has been very, like, different. And so I, that's what I was kind of wondering if you have any recommendations of pediatricians that might not solely rely on just like the check the box. This is how we do pediatrician visits. And you see like three different nurses while you're in the office and like I just am so unused to this type of medicine that I'm looking for a recommendation of something that's a little more like family or like not so clinical feeling. Do you know of yeah, anyone?
2: I, yeah I know exactly what you mean. There are some pediatricians that have redesigned their offices and um, you know the, the practice environment uh, has a lot to do with uh, your total experience with going to the physician. And you're right. You don't want to feel like some part that's going through an assembly line where you have all these different people to do things. So I think... It really
1: frightens my children when they they see like five different people and then someone just comes and holds them down on a table and sticks them with needles. We never had that at our previous office. It was always the same practitioner the entire visit. And they were very gentle. I don't know. It was just a very different experience. So please go ahead.
2: Yeah, one thing you may you may check into. So, uh, and you, you may not be familiar with this. You may be familiar with this term, but it's it's called concierge medicine. So, a lot of physicians have uh, have molded their practice, changed their practice, so that they have more of a concierge, so that they're they see less patients, so they can spend more time with their patients they, uh, agree to be the main doctor that's taking care of their patients. And so you don't have, you know, different people every time you come in. Um, and then, uh, and then, you know, there are some differences in the total experience when you're in the office as a pediatrician, you know, I can tell you it's extremely important for continuity of care and that just means that you're seeing the same people every time as much as possible. Um, And kids get used to the same people. That's one of the things I like about pediatrics is my patients. I was able to see them, uh, you know, over time and got to know them and they trusted me and our nurses. Yeah. Um, But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of clinics are now have external pressures that sort of fight against that or maybe they don't work optimally. Um, But I would just ask around, you know, and call different. That's a great question to ask. Um, and you know, your clinics, if you just call and say, Hey, tell me what the experience is like when I bring my kids in, if I bring my kids in to you, what's it going to look like? What's the waiting area look like? What's it going to look like of of who that they see? Are they going to be able to see the same nurses, the same physicians? Um, are they going to be able to talk to me the way that you need to talk to, you know, that's a, that's something else and spend the time. Uh, with you that you need so those are all excellent questions to ask of any physician but in particular if you're looking for an office setting like that I bet there are some pediatric clinics out there that would give you something that's similar to that
0: Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life's disruptions. Whatever it is, we're here to help. Find out what we're all about and subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public
1: media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: Welcome back to Southern Rim. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about the health care of yourself or maybe somebody in your family. The number to call is one mpb ring That's one 672 7464 or you can send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. dot org. I've got a caller that's been patiently waiting. So, Sherry from Meridian. Good morning, Sherry.
0: I can just a moment.
2: Hey, Sherry, you're Thank on you. the air. Thank you. Uh,
0: yes, sir. I'd like to ask a question about my six year old great grandson. He suffers with an incarcerated hernia, and he's uh-huh. I'm having trouble with thinking about his nutrition because he has a real problem trying new things, and it seems to do with texture. Is there anything that I could try with him that you <clears throat> could recommend?
2: Yeah, let me ask one question for you, Sherry. So, has that hernia been corrected, I'm assuming? It
0: surgically? has not. It has not. Okay. Uh, I, I hate to say this, but their insurance says it's not, uh, they won't cover yeah. it.
2: Really? Okay, that's surprising. So usually when we use the terms, now a hernia, for those of you who don't know, is sort of a bulging out of of some structure through a hole that has not completely closed up like it should. And you can have these in different places. Most people, when they say hernia, they think about an inguinal hernia in your groin area. There are two types. There's a congenital and acquired uh, based on the location where they are. But you can actually have hernias in other places, anywhere you have one structure going into another structure or a hole that usually closes up in development that doesn't close up. Uh, You can also have hernias from previous surgery. sometimes in the abdomen. This is a common area to get that. Two common areas that children uh, you know have these one is the umbilicus or the belly button area Uh, that's called an umbilical hernia and then the other one is an inguinal hernia. Incarcerated means that you have substances that are caught in that that canal, that hole, and that's a dangerous position. So if it's truly an incarcerated hernia, surprising that that insurance company is not going to cover that because particularly if it's in in the uh, uh, abdomen or the, the inguinal area, that's usually intestines. And if they get caught in there, you can have some serious problems. Now, that doesn't mean that every hernia gets that way. And sometimes... It can be what we call reducible. Um, that just means you can, if stuff sort of bulges out, particularly if you bear, if the child or individual bears down, you can sort of just push that gently back in and it's fine. But they, generally speaking, they do need to be closed surgically. You mentioned eating and textures and sort of the pickiness. Now, a six-year-old, a lot of six-year-olds, if not all of them, can be picky eaters. They certainly can Uh, prefer different types of foods, different textures of foods. Uh, If it's a severe texture problem, like if a child just absolutely will not eat uh, or seems even disturbed if they have certain textures in their mouth, they may need to be uh, looked at by a developmental pediatrician, which is a specialist um, that uh, specializes in some variations of things. There are some Inherited disorders where the brain doesn't process input, uh, sensory input, the way that everybody else would. So, uh, for instance, there's some problems with soft textures or even water sometimes uh, that a lot of kids have to get over. It can be, uh, you know, it can be treated, but uh, if it's really severe, if it's affecting, you know, their weight uh, and normal growth and development, and their physician says, you know, this is a big problem that may be somebody that they need to see, uh, for some further testing. Uh, the other thing about any child that's picky in eating is just trying to try things from one, one, uh, you know, one food at a time and sort of sticking with that most of the time you're going to find that, that kids, you know, taste is acquired over time. And, uh, it's also really difficult if you've got one child that has some restrictions and then the rest of the family is just eating what they want. If we have an older brother or maybe an adult that's eating potato chips and this one child can't have potato chips because of a problem, that's going to be hard to limit that one individual. So if everybody in the family can be on board within reason, that's always helpful to, that uh, everybody can sort of chip in. But if it really is an incarcerated hernia, that needs to be looked at. I might get a second opinion and have a physician do what's called a peer-to-peer evaluation, which means okay. that they can talk to either a nurse or a physician at the insurance company to appeal that decision. Okay. Uh, to explain to them what's going on.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, oh. You mentioned the the certain physio- uh, physician that I would carry him to, and how would that be? How would he be? Um, what would be the correct term
2: for that doctor that would do the? So, if it's for the, the texture, sort of the aversion to certain right. textures, yeah, you, it, a developmental pediatrician, uh, like the ones we have here, it's called the K Clinic, C A Y, uh, the uh, Clinic for the Advancement of Youth. That's uh, just sort of the fancy name for it here at UMMC. But developmental pediatricians tend to be at academic centers and referral centers. Thank you. Um, but they have a lot of extra training beyond pediatrics and developmental disorders. How do you, how do you diagnose those? But ask, ask your doctor first, see if that's something that they think that is going on. It may not be. Um, but you know, a pediatric surgeon should be who they're seeing about that hernia. And I'd probably sort of press them, you know, about, Hey, because most insurances, Medicaid, a lot of the private insurances they will fix hernias at six years of age. I mean, that's okay. that's that's a common thing that they'll pay for.
0: Okay. Well, he he went in to have the surgery when he was around four, and then they declined after he was already had been admitted to the hospital.
2: Wow, is that is it around his his navel region or is it in the inguinal region?
0: it is like, around his navel because you mentioned being able to press it back in
2: right and that's what they do yeah yeah that's, so that's that's that reducible uh component to it i yeah i would get them to talk to the insurer that's that's sort of strange sounding to me i i'd get the surgeon to talk to the uh insurance company and ask for that peer-to-peer evaluation where they can talk to somebody higher up the ladder. Something It sounds like something happened with the insurance company that they have an algorithm that they follow, and if things aren't exactly on that algorithm, they tend to kick it out. But there is somebody higher up that reviews those, uh, and I I think you probably got a pretty good chance of of, uh, getting that uh, approved.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much. We're going
2: to... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for calling, Chair. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 672 7464 While we're waiting on the next call, I do have a couple of emails here that I thought we'd get to. Uh, the first is a question. Uh, says, uh, I am a healthy 65-year-old with well-controlled diabetes. I want to participate in a water aerobics class. Uh, in a four-lane swimming pool. Do you recommend I wear a mask while participating? Should I take the class at all? Excellent question from one of our listeners and um, who emailed that in. So if you have diabetes, one of the best things you can do is participate in regular exercise. It's recommended that you get at least 150 minutes of cumulative moderate intensity exercise a week, uh, or you can get 75 minutes of high intensity Uh, That's a great way to stay active. Water aerobics class is an excellent way to do that as well. Uh, Certainly with our our, um, being careful about COVID in different environments, uh, in a pool area, as best we know, uh, you know, staying that same distance that you would normally stay from somebody, at least six feet. If you're active and you're breathing harder, probably 12 feet. There are some limited studies that, that look at that. Uh, if you have a lot more um, heavier breathing, you may be able to spread that a little bit further. But that is certainly something that I think you could probably do, particularly right now. It depends also on how many people in the area, in, in particular the county in which you live, are having uh, you know new cases of COVID. If your county is sort of steady or decreasing, it's likely that, that that's going to be a safer uh, activity for you. I probably wouldn't wear a mask. You certainly can do that. And one thing about water aerobics is you're going to breathe a little bit faster, but you may not not breathe as fast as if you were say outside or uh, walking or or jogging or something like that. But I would uh, probably not wear the mask just because it's going to be a little bit harder to to breathe uh, faster as you uh, participate in those aerobic activities. So First thing to do is to call, uh, you know, wherever that's happening and to ask them what are the precautions that they're taking to help prevent the spread of COVID in patients? Do they have screening when people come in for these activities? Are they socially distanced out in the pool? Uh, But everything you would normally do on land, I would do in the water. Same kind of things. As far as spread in the water itself, there's not uh, any evidence to suggest that covid would spread in a swimming pool or uh, an aerobic pool like that that's properly treated so that should take care of it uh, in the water Uh, even if you if you immerse yourself in it it should be fine Uh, but it's mainly a respiratory uh, transmitted uh, virus
1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions that you might have about your health or the health of somebody that is in your family or maybe your friend's. You can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, 672 7464 or you can email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. We do read those emails and try to get back to you personally uh, with a response. We also like to share those with our uh, larger audience, and certainly if you want to be incognito for those and uh, anonymous, we certainly uh, will respect that. Uh, but we do feel like uh, these the email content is good for our listening audience, so we want to share those as well. So I want to encourage you, if you think of something that pops up during the week and you're like, ah, I should have asked Dr. Jimmy, or I'm really shy, I'm afraid I wouldn't be able to call in. Uh, although we're really nice here on MPB Think Radio. We love to hear from you, so uh, we're not going to be uh, putting you on the spot there. Uh, but if you do want to email us, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, if you can't call or if you don't want to call in, and uh, we'll try to get your answer to your question. Uh, Speaking of an email, so I got another email here that says, uh, Dr. Jimmy, my wife is in her early 70s and has been taking Paxil for about four years. She has two older sisters, age 75 and 80, who have been on Paxil for decades and recently tested for the beginnings of dementia. The question is, is, uh, is dementia a side effect of long-term use of Paxil? So, uh, you know, Paxil is one of our antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications. So it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Fancy name there, long name. Uh, SSRI is another, you know, sort of abbreviated term that we use for those. The generic of Paxil is paroxetine. Um, Very common, very effective antidepressant medication. It's also been used for perimenopausal symptoms in women as well. Um, All of the SSRIs do have side effects. Probably the most common of paroxetine, the two biggest ones uh, in about 15 uh, to 20% of people will have this, is sleepiness. That's why we advocate that you take it at night uh, or right before you go to bed once a day. And then the second most common, uh, side effect tends to be sexual dysfunction. There are others that people have. Uh, weight gain is uh, not a whole lot of people gain weight, about 5% on Paxil, but uh, it tends to be very uh, minimal weight gain. Now, in a, in a patient who is elderly uh, and a patient who has the early uh, symptoms of dementia, Uh, you know, a question always comes up, is that medication related, particularly in this situation where you have multiple family members that may have or are being tested for dementia uh, or may have dementia who have been on Paxil for a long time. So there's not really any evidence that Paxil causes dementia either in the short or long term. In fact, it may actually help in some situations. So dementia has many different causes, I think everybody sort of thinks about uh, Alzheimer's uh, dementia as sort of the thing that pops into your mind. Not all dementia is caused by Alzheimer's, though. So that's only one uh, type of, uh, of dementia. There are the neurodegenerative dementias, uh, so those can be uh, a number of things. Alzheimer's, again, is one. Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia. And Parkinson's is another, you can have actually dementia with Parkinson's. The non-neurogenerative dementias tend to be vascular dementias, and this is damage to the blood vessels that feed the brain, mainly from things like high, long-standing hypertension, diabetes. Over time, that can decrease the blood flow to every organ in your body, but in particular to your brain. Uh, and then you can have a mixed picture if you have more than one of those. Uh, certainly other there's many other types of dementia that are that are less common Uh, some of those are inheritable that can affect you later on but in all of these sometimes the SSRIs uh, Paxil being one of them can be very helpful in treating it and actually in the workup for dementia one of the suggested things uh, screening tools is to screen for depression So depression can certainly make dementia worse, and there can be other symptoms, sort of uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms that can go along with dementia. Makes sense if you think about it. If you're not able to remember things or not able to communicate in ways that you once could, that's certainly very frustrating. If it happens over time, it can lead to uh, depressive symptoms. So uh, to answer back to the question, is this a cause not a cause and may actually be helpful in either uh preventing some of those other symptoms that you might have along with dementia uh and it might be something that you would actually start in some instances with dementia you really need to have a really good um uh, battery of cognitive tests though and to exclude some of these other uh causes of dementia which some of them may be uh reversible so that's just a little bit about dementia and uh, and always a good idea to think about medications in the elderly. As you get older, you may not need to be on the same medications, even if you've been on those for 20 plus years. Uh, our bodies do change the way that we metabolize uh, and how we uh, how those medications are broken down and metabolized in the body can be uh Uh, sometimes very harmful, particularly if you're adding medication. So one of the things I do for my patients and the geriatricians do for their patients is look at that medication list, see what's needed, see what can be taken off, and see what's appropriate. So hopefully that's helpful to you. (coughs) Excuse me. This is uh, Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you on MPB Think Radio. We're going to go to Rita in Eupora, Mississippi. Good morning, Rita.
0: How are you, Dr. Jimmy?
2: I am Um, good. How are you?
0: I'm fine. Uh, my question is, what do you think about diet colas?
2: Um, I t- personally or professionally? <laughs> uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> I am a I am a water, juice, and occasional uh, real Coke in a red can, or preferably in a glass bottle. Is my personal preference uh-huh. every once in a while. But uh, aside from that, you know, professionally. You know, diet drinks were certainly developed back in the um, uh, 70s and 80s really as uh, when they sort of had a boom uh, just because of all the sugar content that are in regular sodas. So it's a lot that you get in a 120 um, CC uh, can uh, and, or if you drink even larger amounts of that. Now you can get 16, 20 ounces, And certainly if you're going out to eat at a fast food place, uh, there's a lot of sugar in, uh-huh. uh, in those cold drinks. Uh, you know, people have been very concerned about the, these artificial sweeteners in a lot of those other drinks, right. uh, the diet drinks, and you know it's been they they've been attributed to everything from cancer uh, risk to uh, to diabetes to lots of different things. There's not a whole lot of data on that. I think it would depend on how much you're drinking. It's always mm-hmm. a good idea, I think, to take a. Take a look and say, okay, am I drinking a six-pack or a 12-pack of uh, diet drinks a day? Maybe I can cut that back. Maybe I can cut it back Mm -hmm. by at least a couple. But uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence that that they cause cancer. Uh, Most of it's sort of anecdotal, and the studies aren't really designed well to to give you the power to see, you know, if if they really are causing the cancer or not. There's so many other things. In our, you know, in our lives that cause cancer. Two of the biggest ones that are things that we can change is what we eat, particularly higher fatty foods are directly linked to cancers. And then the other thing is exercise. So if you can do both those things, sort of cut out the fat in your diet, eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and exercise, you can cut down your risk of cancer a whole lot. And then if you wanna have some of those diet drinks on the side, hey, that's okay. It's probably not that. Uh, not that much of a risk for you. Does that answer the uh-huh. question?
0: Yes, thank you very much. We're very thorough.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you for calling, Rita. We appreciate that. Let's go to Barbara in Boonville. A little bit of alliteration there. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Thank you for calling. What's your question or comment today?
0: I'm wanting to know if benadryl causes uh, Alzheimer's
2: So, uh, yeah, the question is Benadryl, which is an antihistamine. So it blocks a histamine receptor and uh, certainly used the most for allergic type reactions that utilize that receptor. Some people also take it for a sleep aid just because it makes you sleepy. That's one of the side effects. Um, Barbara, there's not any, uh, you know, that I've seen, there's not any kind of risk in taking Benadryl for cancer. It is a pretty safe medication. You do want to watch out for these as you get older, they can have some other side effects. It might affect uh, a lot of different things. Uh, so if you don't really need it, I probably wouldn't take it a whole lot, but that's one of the major, or the most common medications rather that people take for allergies, sort of in the same family as Zyrtec and Allegra uh, and Claritin, those are non-sedating or less sedating really and they l- act a lot longer, but I'm not aware of any kind of side effect or any study that's shown that Benadryl causes cancer.
0: Well, I'm I think,
2: uh, well, <clears throat> dementia. Oh, I'm sorry, dementia. Okay, yeah, I'm, I misunderstood. Yeah, uh, so not really a cause of dementia, although it can have w- some anticholinergic effects uh, and other side effects. Uh, so you may want to be careful. I'd check with your doctor and your pharmacist, both of them, and say, uh, you know, do you think this is safe for me? You may need to decrease the dose. You may not need to take it at all or look for another alternative. But antihistamines in the elderly, they can cause other side effects. So I would be a little careful with that.
0: Okay. Well, thank
2: you. Yes, ma'am medications are really, you know, some of my older physicians in training, most of them who are no longer here, unfortunately, they, um, they, uh, would say, you know what, if you see a patient and they're on 10 medications, try to get it down to five, uh, try to, uh, you know, decrease the amount of medications that they're on and look for side effects. Thankfully we have a lot better means of doing that. A lot of our electronic health records do cross reference those, uh, those medications for any potential side effects. And anytime you order them together, they'll pop up sort of a warning or at least uh, something that you have to think about before you press that button to prescribe them. Uh, But it does, uh, medications is, uh, polypharmacy is another term for it. it, can cause a lot of problems, particularly as we get older. And it's always good to look at that if you have any kind of new symptom to see if you can back off of those medications. Uh, so, Dr. Jimmy, before we go to our next break, I had a question that 's a, a little bit of a follow up Last week, we talked about hydration uh, in the hot summer and uh, months that we 're currently experiencing and certainly are coming coming ahead as it gets hotter as the uh, summer goes along and You talked about uh, importance of hydrating after physical exercise. but one thing that you mentioned that i don 't think a lot of
1: us think about is hydration before you exercise. so if you could give us
2: some guidelines of you know what, how much, and why that 's important. <clears throat> You know, this time of year, you lose so much um, in free fluid through sweating, uh, and that your body needs to cool itself down and to maintain the normal physiologic processes just by, you know, maintaining your blood pressure, maintaining flow to your kidneys and the rest of your organs. So, if you're not optimally hydrated, so I, you know, if you're like me, for instance, so I don't, I can get, uh, in, you know, in a clinic day where I'm seeing a lot of patients. I really have to force myself to drink while I'm seeing in between patients because I'll just forget about it. And before long, it's been six, eight hours since I drank anything. Uh, so it's, it's, um, that's, if you think about going out into, into the heat or a hot climate right after that, your body is already a little bit dehydrated, even though you may not feel like it. So it's important to go ahead and prehydrate, to drink drink, drink, like your, you know, your urine would be clear. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that's probably the best way, sort of the poor man's lab test to see if you're, uh, to see if you're, um, uh, adequately hydrated. But if you wait and you start to drink while you're outside, well, you're already behind when you get out there. So if you're playing tennis, if you're walking or running outside and you go into that situation where you don't quite have as much, Volume in your system uh, water volume blood volume that you would have You're not going to be able to to keep up with that particularly if you're going to do it for more than about 45 minutes um, In the summertime, especially so you there's no way for you to keep up with that And your body's gonna have to work all that harder throw on to that if you've got hypertension or diabetes uh, that's not a situation where you you want to get dehydrated because you can have a lot of negative effects. So prehydrating is very important, and you don't need to prehydrate with anything fancy. Uh, this is for all the younger viewers out there or the parents or grandparents of younger viewers. You know, everybody wants to hydrate all the time with Gatorade, Powerade, choose your favorite electrolyte drink. That is of no use unless you're actually out there exercising. So water remains the most important thing that you can prehydrate with, save those other drinks until you're out there, uh, particularly longer than about 45 minutes. Most of the newest, um, the newest data would support that you, that could help at least a little bit uh, in uh, making sure that you're not going to have an electrolyte problem. But beforehand, you're just going to get a whole lot of extra sugar uh, and calories if you're drinking those um, sports drinks. Uh, when you're not outside. So that's not really helpful. Water's just fine, very healthy for you to do that. Um, A lot of people ask about, you know, uh, juice, juices too. That's not really something we recommend a whole lot. Um, Again, it has, even if it's unprocessed, it has a lot of sugar in it if you drink a lot of it. So no more than about six to eight ounces a day is probably what you need uh, at any age.
1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions and listening to some comments about your health issues, and it's always great to hear those, and Uh, In the future, you know, if you want to call in, that's great, or email us. You certainly can do that. You can email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Got a couple of questions here. Uh, This is one that I received earlier in the week, so it's a great question. Uh, Again, sort of summer-related. So it says, should I stay on my fluid pills that I'm taking if I'm outside during the summer or hotter weather? Uh, So, couple of things about this question that we probably uh, needed as far as some more information, but I'll sort of fill those in as best I I can. Uh, So a fluid pill, there's two different reasons why a person really might be, two big reasons why they might be taking that. So when we say fluid pills, we tend to mean a class of medications called diuretics. So there there are a couple of different types of diuretics. There's something called a loop diuretic that acts on the kidney, to excrete more water. So it uh, basically is pulling water from the, uh, the uh, blood volume and the kidneys are, because of the influence of the medication, are getting rid of more of that. So you do have to have kidneys that are working at least a little bit in order to do that. So there are certain situations where you might be fluid overloaded. Maybe one is heart failure. So that's one uh, situation that that might be important. The other is kidney failure. So sometimes if your kidneys aren't functioning and they need a little extra help in getting rid of that fluid, uh, that's one way that you would do it. The other reason for taking, quote, fluid pills is uh, or diuretic would be for blood pressure reasons. We've known for years now, decades now, that diuretics, which is a very old class of medications, are Very useful, and most people would require a diuretic in combination or alone to control their blood pressure to goal. And there are certain classes, subclasses of diuretics. One is a thiazide diuretic, those are the most common. That's things like chlorothalidone and hydrochlorothiazide. Those are diuretics that are used for blood pressure reasons, so getting the blood pressure down. Uh, There are uh, uh potassium sparing diuretics, triamterene, um, spironolactone. Uh, these act a little bit differently on the kidney, but they don't, they, they tend to, uh, not cause a potassium level to go down. Now, all of those, uh, diuretics or fluid pills, they don't really get rid of excess fluid a whole lot. And particularly after you've taken them regularly for about six to eight weeks, you really don't see the That much at all. And a lot of people will even take them before they go to bed at night and not see any excess excretion of fluid. Uh, But they're mainly used to treat blood pressure. So if you're going outside during the summer and you're on a blood pressure medicine that is a diuretic, or maybe your health professional has said, hey, this is a fluid pill for your blood pressure, it's generally suggested that you don't stop that. Again, because it's not doing much to pull fluid off, it's really treating the blood pressure through other mechanisms. Now, if you have heart failure or if you have kidney failure, your physician may change your fluid pill or your diuretic depending on certain factors. Now, weight is a very good one. If you're weighing yourself every day sometimes I'll do this if I'm outside working a whole lot. I'll weigh myself before. I guess it's probably the scientist in my uh, in me that's doing this. I'll weigh myself before and then I'll weigh myself after. And you can sort of see how much fluid you lose during that time period. Even if you burn calories, you're not going to lose a whole lot of weight. Most of the weight you lose when you're outside doing that is fluid losses. And then you'll sort of know over the next 8 to 12 hours sort of how to ma- how to, uh, get that fluid back in your system. Uh, but sometimes physicians, uh, and, um, physician teams will use daily weights in treating heart failure or even treating, uh, patients with kidney disease with uh, a modification of their diuretics. They may have even given you some suggestions about how to do that at home. So you may want to just check with your physician about that, but using that daily weight is very useful in trying to decide how much of that diuretic or fluid pill that you need uh, at any one time, but uh, it's hard to it's hard to really predict that ahead of time. Uh, but if you know in certain situations that you're going to maybe be a little bit more dehydrated, then you might want to check with your physician about modifying that regimen.